As the kids are heading downstairs, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4, and then put a finger there, because we're going to jump back into the Old Testament. We are going to start in Exodus, go to Numbers, then Psalms, and then we'll jump into our text this morning. Uh, Last week, uh, Robert preached through um, Hebrews chapter 3, and he pled with those who don't believe to believe. He made a passionate plea, if you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, to believe in Jesus Christ. This morning, I come with the flip side of that coin and plead with you who do believe in Jesus Christ to live out your faith. And so, as we read through this text in Hebrews, we will see hope we will see a warning, and we will see a call to action. But before we can uh, truly understand what is going on, we need to remind ourselves what God did for the Jewish nation um, when he delivered them out of Egypt and how they responded. Um, Hebrews is obviously written to Hebrews, hence the name. And um, the Jews, having read this letter, hearing this letter preached, they would know exactly what the author is talking about um, and what he's referring to when he, um, in Hebrews chapter 3, references um, Meribah. And we don't really know exactly what Meribah was. So we're going to start in Exodus chapter 17. If you would like to turn there in your Bibles, you are more than welcome to. I've got this passage up on the screen. Um, Exodus 17 uh, begins after, obviously, 16. I can count, just so you know. Um, And in Exodus 16, we see a story that we all know of, even if we don't know the exact details. In 16, the Jewish nation grumbles against God that they are hungry and that when they were in Egypt, they sat next to pots of meat. And it was so great, and yet here they are in the wilderness. And so what does God do? He gives them manna in the morning. And then at night, he sends them quail, and he provides for them. And we also read in 16 that they saw, the whole nation of Israel saw the glory of God in the wilderness. And then we get to 17, verse 1, and Moses writes, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and came and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. 
And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? What a wonderful story, isn't that? Well, this happens before Exodus 20. Again, I can count. And um, which is the giving of the Ten Commandments. So at this point, they have just left Egypt. They've been gone from Egypt a couple of months, no more. They haven't even gone to the promised land yet and sent the spies into the land at this point. And already they are grumbling against the Lord. Then if you would, if you would like, turn in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 20. We'll start in verse 2. And in Numbers chapter 20, we find ourselves at the end of 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, 40 years of the people grumbling against God, 40 years of God providing manna, providing quail, providing water for the people. Over and over again, God was faithful. And here at the very end, in Numbers chapter 20, Moses writes, Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron, And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? Sounds familiar, doesn't it? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. So here we see that even Moses and Aaron did not believe in God, and they acted in their own ways and in their own righteousness and in their own thoughts, and they didn't trust in the Lord. Hebrews chapter 3 quotes from Psalm 95, and Hebrews 4 pulls from that quotation. So I want us to actually read all of Psalm 95. It's short, at least I think it's short. It's just 11 verses. Um, because this is an amazing psalm to to think about in light of what we have just read and in light of what we are going to be diving into in Hebrews. This is a psalm of David 
And David writes, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Let's pray. God, as we are about to dive into Hebrews, I pray and ask that you would open our eyes to see, God, that you would move in us and stir in us and convict us where we need to be convicted. God, may we see your presence. May we see your glory this morning. And may we respond in faith, belief, and in worship. Glorify yourself now. In Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews chapter 4. Well, really, we're going to start back a couple of verses in um, chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, because chapter 4 is a continuation of the thought of Hebrews chapter 3. So we're not going to really separate it and cut it off and create our own thought. We're just going to continue with this flow and this train of thought that the author has. Hebrews chapter 3, 18, the author writes, And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? but to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest 
so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom, to whom we must give account. So this passage is filled with hope, it is filled with a warning, and it is filled with a call to action. We see at the conclusion of chapter 3 that God denied this generation of Israel from back um, in the wilderness days of entering into his rest. At first glance, we might think the rest was the promised land, that it was a land flowing with milk and honey, and God had said if they are faithful to keep his commands, they are faithful to live out the law, and they are faithful to be obedient to him, he would give them rest, he would give them peace, and he would provide for them. And the promised land was to be a great land for them. They've been saved out of slavery. The parent generation died off, and their kids are raised up, and they are being led into the promised land. But what we see in chapter 4, the author writes, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. That promise to enter the rest was not fulfilled when they entered the promised land. God's promise of rest was not tied to a physical location. It wasn't tied to prosperity. It wasn't tied to health, to wealth, to um, having peace with your neighbors. It wasn't tied to having a physical kingdom. We read in uh, verse 8 of chapter 4. Actually, yes, verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So the rest that God swore they would not enter is something greater than the Garden of Eden remade. So the picture of the promised land, the idea was a painting a picture of, hey, we're going back to the garden. I hear that all the time. There's songs that people sing, people preach about, let's go back to the garden. Let's get back to the garden. We want to be back in the garden. And the promise of rest and peace is far greater than the garden of Eden ever was. Adam and Eve walked with God. They talked with God. But on this side, we can experience God in a far deeper way, in a far greater way. And the author of Hebrews starts to paint that picture. We see back up at the end of um, verse 3, um, the author writes, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. And then in verse 4, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. He ties the promise of rest back to creation. Not back to the garden, but he ties it back to creation. So what did God do? In six days, God created everything. And then on the seventh day, he rested from all his works. 
The question is, why did he rest from all of his works? Now, I think, for me personally, creating the entire universe would be kind of exhausting. So creating all the stars, countless, countless, billions, trillions, I think Google is a number, is an actual number, so Googles of stars, um, and uh, that would be exhausting. Then you create the planets, and then you create people, and that is not what God rested from. He wasn't exhausted. He rested because his work was completed. He wasn't, he didn't need to continue to work. He set out to accomplish a goal, and he accomplished it. He created, and then he was done. He completed the work. There wasn't anything else left to do. It was finished. So when the author ties that rest back into creation, it starts to point us to a greater, deeper rest where a work is completed and finished. The author writes in chapter and verse 10 of chapter 4, For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So God is resting not because he's exhausted. And when I think of resting, and when my wife Lindsay thinks of resting, we think of two different things. She loves a nap. That's her idea of resting. Me, I hate naps. Because after I wake up from the nap, I feel worse than I did when I actually went down. So I power through. And so for me, an idea of resting is having no responsibilities. I don't have to worry about anything. I don't have to do anything. Just kicking back on the sofa, kicking back somewhere, and just relaxing with nothing to do. That's my idea of rest. But that's not what the author is talking about here. He compares us entering God's rest and us resting from our works is the same as God resting from his works. So when we think about resting from our works, we think about recouping energy and relaxing. And, um, but that is not the case with God. What he is talking about and what he is pointing the picture to, which he has already been talking about from the very beginning of Hebrews, um, from chapter 1, verse 3. He, being Jesus Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It is finished. The work that Christ accomplished was salvation, was redemption, and the work that we strive for, if we, understanding Hebrews, if we believe in the law, the law says live this way, do these things. If you keep the law without breaking it in any capacity, you will be righteous, you will be holy, and you can enter God's rest. But as we have seen from all of the Old Testament, it is impossible to keep the commandments of God because we are broken, we are sinful beings, and just like Israel, we grumble against God and we don't believe in the promises of God. God gives us manna and we reject it. And God gives us quail to eat and we reject it. He gives us water to drink 
and we reject it. We say, along with Israel, I would rather be back in Egypt. I would rather be a slave to sin. I would rather be back in the kingdom of darkness than be in your kingdom of light because it was better for me back in chains, in bondage, in suffering. That was better than being with you, God. That's what Israel said. That's what we say. We cannot accomplish this work of righteousness. We can't. But Christ accomplished that work for us. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There is no need to labor for our own righteousness. There is no need to strive to prove ourselves to God. Christ has already done the work. That is the rest that God swore the people of Israel would not enter in in that generation. That is the rest in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. There is a Sabbath rest, and that Sabbath rest is found in Christ and in Christ alone. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus says. No one comes to the Father but through me. Christ is our way into the rest, which is why we focus on evangelical Christianity when we talk about the status of the gospel spreading around the world, because Evangelical Christianity doesn't mean you have to be Baptist in name or you have to be Presbyterian in name or it just means that you believe and you trust in this, that Christ is our rest and he accomplished everything for us. There's nothing we have to do. That is what we preach to the world around us. So many religions around the world claim you have to work, you have to labor, you have to strive to prove yourself to God, if they even believe in God at all. There are some that believe you have to work, you have to labor, you have to strive to be good so that when your time comes, when you die, you can poof out of existence. You can cease to be. But it's all centered around striving and working and, and trying to fight for something and the good news of Jesus Christ is that we don't have to do that. It is already finished. And so this is the hope that we see in Hebrews chapter 4. But immediately after saying, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, he transitions into a warning. And that warning is, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Some translations will translate fear as, let's be cautious, let's beware, let's be on guard. And those translations, I think, fail in how they've translated that word because the Greek word is to fear, is 
terror is to put to flight, to run away. So when I think of this, I went to Liberty University for my undergrad, and at Liberty, um, on Halloween, or the three weeks leading up to Halloween, we would put on a hell house. Yay! Um, and my first year, I worked at um, the hell house. And if you don't know what a hell house is, it is, you go through this house of horrors. And traditionally, it is, they show you real life scenarios of death and how fragile life is and how terrifying it can be. And then at the very end, they present the gospel to you. And let's see a show of hands. Hooray, we had 10,000 people come to faith in Christ. Huzzah. Um, And then the way Liberty University did it was they would show some scenes of car accidents and abuse and other things and stuff. But I worked at the front of the house, which you stand in line for hours and you get up to this tent and then they put you in a group and then the Grim Reaper throws open the the door flap, scares you, and then leads you through this path through the woods and it's dark, it's night, and there's a bunch of us dressed up as dead people, scary people, things, and it leads you through this wood and then you have to go through this tunnel to the front of the house. And I was in the tunnel. And that tunnel was really low, so I had, to, I had to duck to get in the tunnel. And I would be up against the wall, and people would walk by me, and I could feel, I couldn't see them. I could see them coming in, but once they were in the tunnel, I couldn't see them, but I could kind of feel their presence passing in front of me, and I would just, as they walked by, or I'd be, hello, and they would get all scared. And there was one kid, I say kid, he was, I don't know, probably in his early 20s, he came through and I got behind him and he was terrified and he was panicking, trying to find his way out of this tunnel. And I'm behind him the whole way talking to him. And he gets out of the tunnel and he is greeted at the front of this house by clowns with chainsaws. And so they've got these, now they don't have the chain on them. The chains were taken off, but they're revving those engines on those chainsaws and coming at him straight ahead, two clowns coming at him between them, a house with dead people around the front of the house. To his left, he's got a forest of woods. To his right, he's got a black tarp. On the other side of the tarp is where we can get out of character, drink some water, have a little snack um, as we're there for till like 3 a.m. So I'm behind him, psychotic clowns are coming at him and he bolts to the right and runs through the tarp, busts the tarp. That is putting to flight. That is fear. He is fleeing from this scene that is terrifying him. That is what the author is getting at. Let us fear, let, uh, lest we cease to obtain it, lest we fail to obtain the rest of God. Israel failed to obtain it because of unbelief, because of disobedience. And the warning is that we need to fear that unbelief. And we need to run and flee and bust through whatever tarps we need to to get away from that. That is what the author is getting at. And when other translations say, be cautious, be on guard, I mean, that does not capture the urgency and the warning that is found here when he says, fear. Let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Verse 2, For good news came to us, just as to to them. 
But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. They heard the promises of God. They saw God's works on a daily basis for 40 years, and yet they did not believe. They had good news. They had hope. They had the promise, and yet they did not believe. And our warning is let us fear unbelief so that we are not like Israel of old who did not attain it. We see in verse 6, the author writes, Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter it because of disobedience. And then also in verse 11, we read, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. The warning is to watch after your life. How is your life any different than that of Israel of old? We read in James, James says in chapter 2, show me your faith without works and I will show you my faith by my works. Show me a faith without works, I'll show you a dead faith. He says, the demons believe and yet they tremble. So how is your belief any different than that of demons who were in heaven, who experienced God in a way that we have yet to experience God, and yet they rebelled against him, and there is no hope of salvation for them. Israel had the promises of God, saw God work day in and day out and provided for them, and yet they grumbled and complained, and they did not believe, and they were disobedient. So the warning here is let us flee from that. Let us fear that that is not us. And so there is the call to action after the warning. That call to action, verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, a very familiar to most of us, Paul writes, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Hebrews chapter 3 that Robert preached on last week in verse 13, we read, But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. We battle unbelief. We fight against unbelief. We flee from unbelief by holding fast to the word of God, by getting into each other's lives and encouraging each other as long as it is called today. My favorite saying is tomorrow never comes. So 
And that is what the author here picks up on is that saying. So that saying is ancient. Um, <clears throat> dates back at least 2,000 years uh, that tomorrow never comes. For as long as it is called today, and every morning you wake up, it is called today. It is always today. So therefore, every morning you wake up, exhort one another, challenge one another, flee unbelief. As David writes in Psalm 95, as the author picks up here over and over again through chapter 3 and chapter 4, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. So when you are tempted to sin, when you are facing that temptation, the desires of your flesh, the sinful part of you that wants to run back to Egypt and live in darkness, when you are facing that temptation, the call is do not harden your heart. Are you going to harden your heart to the promises of God, to the commands of God like Israel did? Or are you going to flee from them and flee to Christ? Are you going to run to Christ who accomplished all the work? It's all done. He is your rest. Where are you going to go? What's your choice going to be? It's a call to action. We can't sit by and do nothing. There is a belief, there's a Christian belief um, that is once saved, always saved. And usually, not always, but usually what people mean by that is I walked the aisle at some point in my life. I prayed a prayer. The preacher told me I'm good. Therefore, I'm good. I can live my life however I want to. I can do whatever I want to do. I'm good. I'm saved. Once saved, always saved, right? I prayed to receive Jesus. God said, if you pray to receive me, he'll give you to me. He'll save you. Amen. I can go out and live however I want to. And yet when we look at Israel, we see that God said, I loathed that generation and swore in my wrath that they would not enter my rest. Jesus said, in the last days, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not perform miracles in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do great works in your name? And I will say to them, depart from me, you sons of wickedness. I never knew you. So how is our life going to be any different? Paul points that out in Ephesians 2. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. James picks up on that theme as well. And that your faith, if you genuinely believe in God, your faith will have fruit. Jesus talks about, they will, by this they will know that you are my disciples, that you bear much fruit. So the evidence, the assurance of your salvation is that you are working for the glory of Christ Unlike Moses and Aaron, who did not believe in God and did not uphold God's holiness before Israel, we are called to serve the Lord, to work for Him, to glorify Him, and to uphold His holiness before the world around us. We are created for good works, which God prepared beforehand. So before you were ever saved, before you were ever created, before time began, God knew you. God loved you, he created you, he chose you. And I will end with this. I heard probably one of the greatest quotes um, last week. God will never stop loving you because he never started loving you. Because he has always loved you. For you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. 
He knew you before the foundation of the world. And he loved you before you ever existed. His love has no end. So in that love, in that rest that we can trust in God, we work out our faith with fear and trembling, as Paul calls us to. We strive to live our lives in a way that glorifies God. So we challenge each other, we dive in each other's lives, and we fulfill the commands of Christ in all aspects. So as we leave here this week, let us think about what that means to dig into each other's lives, to challenge each other as long as it is called today, to live out our lives that glorify God. Let's pray.